This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well, conversations with creative people who have a lot to say. Today, the author of Every Life a Story, Natalie Jacobson Reporting, by Natalie Jacobson. For four decades, she was the face of local news in New England. And in her new book, she tells the story of her career as a pioneer in television, in many respects breaking the glass ceiling for women and working on and with one of the most innovative and successful local television stations in the country, WCVB. On a personal level, Natalie describes the unique partnership she had with her co-anchor and husband, Chet Curtis, and the relationship, the extraordinary one, that she built up with the people of New England. Very proud and happy to welcome an outstanding broadcast colleague. It's time to go on mic with Natalie Jacobson. What a delightful book with a great title, Every Life a Story. Was that your title right off the bat? Yes, that was the title because after I wrote it, I thought that's exactly what the book was about. It wasn't, as a reporter, the story shouldn't be about you. So this book shouldn't be so much about me, although you needed some biography. Um, and it's everybody else. It's that's what a reporter does. We tell stories about other people. My heart be still. I'm I'm begging for those days to return. <laughs> we'll yeah. talk. We'll talk about the news media in more detail as we move along here. But the, what a lovely sentiment! It starts out with you uh, telling your story of America and a new country for your family, Serbian roots. And uh, is it true that English was not something that you came out of the womb with? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. No, we don't come out of the womb with anything, right? But yes, that's right. Um, my grandparents on both sides, mother and dad's side, came from Serbia. And so their English was somewhat spotty. And as a result, we spoke Serbian at home. And I didn't mm. learn to speak English till I went to school. Mom said I came home crying for weeks and months. But by Thanksgiving, I was pretty fluent in English. So total immersion worked in my case. It, it certainly did. What was your uh, family name? Why don't we share that? Salad. Salatich, S-A-L-A-T-I-C-H, Salatich. Great, great. And your dad is quite an interesting figure. He's pictured in the book and talked about. He lives, in a sense, the American dream of making it, doesn't he? No question about that. In fact, he was um, recognized with the Horatio Alger Award, uh, as was Anthony Athanas, you might remember from Pier of 4. Course, yeah. um, so many immigrants in our country, I'm glad they have that award, who came, uh, or actually dad's not an immigrant, he's a first generation, I'm a second generation, but his parents came from Serbia, as I said. This country with its liberty, its freedom, its opportunity, just offers people a chance to, to be the best they can be. Um, and back then, of course, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, well, late 1800s in the case of my grandparents, that big migration uh, into the United States, there was no welfare or insurance. So various ethnic groups, you know, sought help from their fellow whoever, Greeks, Serbs, Russians, Germans, etc. And everybody pitched in. They got a job. They did the best they could. They lived within their means and helped each other. And America has grown exponentially from then. Of course, we've changed an awful lot, as you noted a minute ago. It's a beautiful story. And uh, I'm so glad you were able to write it, preserve that legacy so beautifully. There are a lot of relatable stories here that, despite the fact that you worked most of your career in Boston, a lot of stories relate. The most pressing to begin with is the fact that you didn't start out wanting to be the world's greatest local TV anchor, which you became. <laughs> you, well, what, uh, paths to life and career sometimes are, are wavy. What was your path to this career like? I had no idea what I wanted to do when I got out of school. and I went to the University of New Hampshire quite by good fortune 
My dad was old school. He didn't see any reason for a girl to go to college. Um, you know, he said, your mom can teach you what you need to know. My godfather, bless his heart, said, you know, Bill, Willie, he used to call him, you know, girls go to school now. So I couldn't get a job in anything for a long, long time. Um, right out of school, Bill Jacobson and I, my first husband, went to Bangkok, Thailand during Vietnam in the late 60s. I had a fabulous job there, which I would never have had in the United States um, because I was a girl. And then after, you know, some time and trying and trying and knocking on doors and making phone calls, Jim Thistle took a shot with me and hired me as ostensibly as a cub reporter at the old Channel 56. But as it turned out, that job wasn't available. So I ascertained the needs of the community, which every station was required to do every three years to get a license. Wow, I remember doing that in radio. Community ascertainment, you basically had to talk to almost everybody who had any say in the community and sit there and write down their responses. It was That's right. It was interesting. Yeah, and, well, then you would get it, Jordan. What a great first job for a girl in her yeah. t- or a boy, whatever, in my case, a girl in her 20s, um, to really get to know your neighbors, everyone from the governor and the mayor down to the guy digging ditches or putting up telephone lines up poles. Uh, all kinds of people, young, old, black, white, Hispanic, immigrants, uh, longtime residents, everyone. So what a, I mean, what a gift to you and to me that that was right. our beginning. Well, you're right. Our, and what we programmed had a point. <laughs> you're right, Natalie. And uh, of course, it went away and people said it's unnecessary. It's too much work, et cetera, right. et cetera. But we, we can wallow in all that all we want. We're going to talk about the, the future. So you said it a couple of times. You, in the days you were getting started, were told uh, this is not a job for a girl. But this wasn't too long ago. I mean, you're a young Well, it was lady. within my lifetime, so it couldn't have been that too long ago. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking late 60s early 70s, right? Somewhere in there? Right. Well, Channel 5 went on the air, you know, 50 years ago this year, um, yeah. March 19th, uh, 1972. And before that, I worked at BZ, <laughs> your home base. Yes, yes. Uh, for three or four years, but um, three years, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Learning the trade, working with wonderful people, and finally got a job as a reporter with this fledgling station, WCVB. And what a gift that was to work with a guy named Bob Benner who ran the station saying, mm. I want everyone to be the best they can be and take risks, try things. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. It was a different tenor, you know, of, of direction. And, uh, and then to have Jim Thistle, the greatest news director of all time, it was just extraordinarily fortunate. And we were a whole bunch of enthusiastic people. You no, know, there were no rules about TV. We were pioneers. We were creating it. We decided what is local TV? And what we decided at CVB was we are just part of the community. Everyone who's watching us is our neighbor, and we need to invite them to be part of the programming as well as the viewing. So it was an extraordinary time in local television. The TV station was noted by national press as probably the best, most impressive local station in the country for more than one year at a time. The fact that, (laughs) this is amazing, the fact that a TV station in Boston produced movies with Henry Fonda blows my mind. Oh, that's such a great story. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> that's indicative of Bob Bennett. He came from California and he said one day, why should Hollywood have all the fun? No way. So he put out the word through all of New England, a six state region. All of you writers in New England, send me a script for a movie and I will hire 
a uh, qualified bench, you know, a group of people to read all the scripts and choose one. And I promise we will produce it with high quality talent and high quality technical ability. And that's what we did. We created Summer Solstice was the mm-hmm. winner. I remember. Of all of and we had hundreds, by the way. I I think in the book I, I put down the number because I looked it up, but it escapes me now. But there were hundreds of people who submitted mm. scripts. How great is that? Talk about making the community part of your TV station. Oh, yeah. And and there was so much more. I mean, there's a local television show that's still on the air called Chronicle. I mean, who does local magazine shows anymore? Channel 5 is still doing it. Conflagration of really amazing people, talented managers, and talented broadcasters who just happen to come together. I don't know if that's a secret storm that's going to happen anytime again soon. Yeah, well, one thing to note um, with Chronicle is Chronicle celebrating, I think, 40 years this year. Mm-hmm. And that was around when we did the precursor to it, which was called Calendar, which was, eh, okay, we didn't know what we were, but Chronicle figured out its identity. But the reason it's lasted, and this is what should lift everybody's spirits, is because people watch it. Yeah. If no one watched it, it would have disappeared a long time ago. I have met people who say, oh, you know that Chronicle show? Man, I moved here from Texas or whatever, Arizona, and I didn't know where to go, where to take my children. So I watched that show and they tell me all about New England. It was a game changer for my life. And it remains so today. Yeah. Anthony Everett and uh, and Shana do just such a great job following the footsteps of Peter Mahegan and Mary Richardson. Indeed, indeed. We're talking with Natalie Jacobson, a local favorite still to this day, beloved by the viewers. It's a book called Every Life a Story, Natalie Jacobson Reporting. She wrote it, of course. And you chose to begin the book with an on-camera event that sort of became national news, even though it was a local story about John Silber, the BU president running for governor. Let's explain what happened and why you chose that to kick off the book. I thought that was pretty interesting. Well, you know, actually Dick Flavin, a playwright and reporter and gifted writer who used to work at WBZ and has been a friend of mine for as long as I can remember, mm-hmm. really talked me into making it the lead. Uh, I had it buried much um, further down in the book. And he said, that's the story that most people will remember. And he said, I would start with that. So what that was, to, just to quickly give you a little background, in 1990, I had this thought that I presented to my superiors and said, you know, I have this idea that maybe most people vote for somebody because I like that guy. I like that gal. Well, we do a good job of telling you where the candidates stand as in terms of their issues. But if I'm right, do we have a responsibility to tell people more about who these candidates are as human beings, their character? My superiors agreed with me, and we started what became known as at-home interviews. And that was the first one. John Silver was running against Bill Weld. And uh, it it was pivotal. Um, I was uncomfortable that that it seemed to have been so influential. But it did expose the character of both of those men, and the voters decided which character they preferred. Being around at that time, what was interesting was the the rush to defense of you, the the admiration and respect that listeners and viewers had for you sort of shock you or surprise you or uh, when yeah. you heard that reaction? Yeah. It did, um, mm-hmm. which just increased my inner sense of responsibility. 
Um, yes, it did. It's very likely that uh, people at your level of success feel uh, pretty special about what they're doing, and I think you should feel good about it. But I detect a sense of humbleness, humility throughout your life story. Everybody who knows you says the same thing. You had a lot of exposure and a lot of attention thrust on you. How did you keep it together? I don't know. I don't know how I would be any other way. I would have to go back to my parents. Um, They taught me, you know, nobody owes you anything. Work hard. Be kind to people. Uh, You're not the only one in the world. Um, My mother used to always say there's always two sides to a story. So I learned the basic decency of life from my Mm -hmm. mother and father. Mm. Plus, faith was a big part of our life. We were Christians uh, of the Eastern Orthodox, Serbian Eastern Orthodox faith. That's the same church as, say, Russian or Greek Orthodox, um, the language being different. And so believing in something bigger than yourself and bigger than life on earth and having parents who taught you that kind of right from wrong and caring for people, I mean, it's, it was my upbringing. I'm lucky to have had it. We didn't have any money. We were pretty poor. Right. But we didn't know we were poor because we didn't know anybody who had any more than we did. <laughs> I think you were in the business at the right time because uh, local news was paramount. And, of course, there were, there were not those competitive forces like there are today for, for news gathering. The local celebrities were the anchors. We watched you every night. We felt we knew you. And uh, you had a uh, – and still do. We have a warmth and a connection with the, the viewers. You tell a couple of really funny stories about uh, doing – marathon broadcasts that would go from six in the morning till midnight at, t- at some point. People don't realize you, you log a lot of time on the air. It wears you down. I just felt it was a, a long conversation with everybody who was watching us. I go back to 1976 when we were celebrating America's birthday. Oh, the irony is, is <laughs> it's amazing. Think of this. So the Queen of England comes aboard the Britannia, spends an entire day in Boston visiting some 11 different sites, Old Fannel Hall, etc., cetera, um, to celebrate America's independence from Britain. <laughs> we fielded 11 <laughs> live cameras. Yeah. It's never been done before, and that was microwave. This is before satellites, and this was film days as well. That's thanks to Jim Thistle. He, had, he was the visionary who knew how to cover a story. And man, it, we were so excited to do this. I never studied so hard in my life. I may have learned American history in school, but boy, I knew it way better after, in preparation for that broadcast because that's what it was. It was a nine-hour, eight or nine-hour history lesson in the making and as well as in the relearning and revisiting. And I'll never forget, people wrote, who, and they this is back in the day of postage stamps, who um, wrote letters and said, your coverage was great, thank you, but we had to jump in our car and drive down from New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and come to Boston. We needed to smell it and taste it, let our senses be filled with the irony of this extraordinary story. The show must go on. You just have that extra energy, I guess, that propels you. Well, yeah, and of course, as you well know, it depends on the story. For example, at 9-11, you know, that was an a marathon coverage and it was the most frightening time of any reporter's life because we didn't know what was happening our job is to tell you what's happening we didn't know what was happening after the first plane went into the 
tower in New York. And then the second one, when at first we're thinking it was, maybe it's an accident, right. and the second one goes in, and then we hear about a plane in Pennsylvania, and then the Washington is targeted, um, and the, the president is put on a, a plane and ferried around. So in case he's being attacked, we had no idea. And there was a case, uh, I mean, I still get goosebumps and tears to think about it because, I mean, I had this horrible story in Texas now. My God, it brings mm. back mm. being a reporter during a time when you can't even believe what you're telling people and you don't really have enough information to put it in any kind of perspective. And what you have to do, and I think what we all did, this isn't just me, by the way, you know, there's no such thing as one person in TV news or radio. You know, we, you know it well, Jordan, sure, sure. with the team effort. And yep. we all just thought, okay, okay, everybody take a deep breath. Okay, what do we know? And we're going to tell people, here's what we know. We have no idea what's coming in the next five seconds. Just hang in there. Let's everybody just try to be calm. Let's pull together as Americans. Let's 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 see where this takes us. Mm. It was a very um, scary time, and as I said, watching what transpired in Texas yesterday and all those little children and their parents. Are oh. you kidding me? Yeah, as we record this, just for the listeners, uh, this is recorded the day after the Tex. We'll call it the Texas massacre of children. Just horrific. All that we're talking about relates to where we are today, and I'll get your take on this before we come back to the story in the book, Every Life a Story by Natalie Jacobson. It seems as though there isn't that attempt to get it right. It's just to get it out there first. Now, I know it's not across the board, but what's your overall take about where we are with the, the social media, instantaneous advocacy, Twitter, all that stuff that interrupts what used to be straight news? Well, a couple of answers to your question. One, even worse than let's get it first, is let's get my opinion out there. Mm. Before cable came along, opinion was not allowed to be sold as information or fact. It was labeled commentary, editorials, and they were worthy to listen to. It's good to get try to understand why a person believed what he or she believes. But then when cable, cable challenged broadcast in court and won, I'm not sure people remember this and why would you, but because it's so ubiquitous now, but uh, cable said, hey, wait a minute, government, federal government, FCC, you have no right to tell us that we need to have a license or tell us about ascertaining needs of the community or fairness or equal time because we don't use federal airwaves. Mm -hmm. We lay cable. Mm -hmm. And cable survived with smaller audiences in sharp contrast to broadcast television where you have to get as many people as you can to sell your ads to exist. Cable sold subscriptions. So they could have a much smaller audience and survive and make money even eventually because of subscriptions. But then that gave way from the early days of excellent reporting, in my opinion, starting with CNN's, some of their foreign news, as good as ABC, CBS, NBC, were, which were staffed to the nines across the world. Um, CNN kind of wrote the book on, not kind of, they did write the book on um, live coverage across the globe. But we went from that to suddenly or maybe not so suddenly, hmm. uh, slowly, I suppose, is more accurate, becoming cable stations of opinion. 
and and who could shout their opinion loudest? Who could be the most forceful? Who could be the strongest? Who could be the nastiest? Who could use the best adjectives and adverbs? Who could persuade those watching to my point of view is the only point of view that makes sense. And if you don't agree with me, you're either stupid or deplorable or un-American. Oh, come on. Well, and unfortunately, you know, that's where we've been for a while now. And I pray to God that that changes. And as for social media, oh, Jordan, I th if, to me, it's like the tail wagging the dog. And you people need to remember your information is only as good as your source. And since anybody can be a source, you can write anything you want. You don't have to prove you're accurate. Uh, you don't have to prove anything. Just put it out there. And, you know, we're still enthralled with the Internet in that sense and this, this big community of social media yeah. and all. And we need to get past it. We, we need to take to control of the technology. We need to understand uh, uh, that it cannot be the driving force of this nation or we won't make it. I concur with just about everything you've said, and you've said it so eloquently. I just have a few more things. And in fact, a colleague of yours, Liz Bruner, has been a guest on this program. I know you guys know each other, and uh, oh, she's, well. she's terrific. She's and this comes up in her story, in her book, and it also sort of comes up in your story. The treatment of the listeners or the viewers in this case, and the deference that you pay to people who are suffering. I mean, it's that old cliche, how do you feel, ma'am, in the middle of a massacre? Uh, you know, that's it's so cold and calculating. And I... I feel for those poor people, but uh, you have a, it seems to me, a sense of respect and, and understanding for the common guy, gal. Well, thank you for saying that, because I think I'm a common gal. I don't think I'm any different than anybody listening to your program or watching a television newscast. Feel the same way about me. I'm just an ordinary schlub who just happens to have uh, an opportunity to do what I do, and I'm honored by that opportunity. In the book, you refer to your late husband, Chet Curtis, who was your colleague, your co anchor ultimately, and how challenging it was, I guess, in both the times you were married and then the times you weren't. That had to be probably one of the toughest professional and personal times working with somebody that, you know, you weren't necessarily living with at that time. Reflect on that. I know you book goes into detail? Well, I tried to be circumspect in what I said, but for the most part of 25 years, Chet and I had a wonderful marriage. Um, we enjoyed three wonderful children, two that he had by a prior marriage, Dana and Dawn, that I love dearly to this day and think of as my own daughters. And then we had a daughter, Lindsay Dawn. Life was very uh, open. Uh, that was uncomfortable for me. I tended to shy away from um, the publicity of the more intimate parts of our lives, whether it be birth of a child or a sickness. Um, my mom got really sick. I was very sick and out of work and almost died. Mm. And I survived and my poor mother did not. And so our lives were very, very open and public. So when I wrote this, I would like to just concentrate it on the wonderful life that Chet and I shared professionally and personally. But I knew, uh, I knew and Others so advised me that you have to address the issue of the of the divorce. So I did with what I hope is um, respect, um, as well as a sense of privacy and decency and caring about our three girls and grandchildren. 
And that's all. I, I can't. I'm not. Well, I want to mention the fact that the, the, it's very well done in the book. The only question is really how, and it's not a question, it's an observation. When you're in the public eye in any shape, way, or form, you immediately, in the minds of some, become uh, bait. You know, you're, you're, you're chum in the water for people who just want to stir up a little trouble and speculate. And that's something, as you mentioned, Natalie, and those who know you well, and I don't know you that well, but I know people who know you well, have said all along, you're a private person and you're never looking for any of that stuff. But it, it sort of came up and you, you held it together, both of you, on the anchor yeah. desk. Pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, we did. Um, I think we did. Uh, it was hard. A fun question to sort of close, and you cover a lot of these in the book, some of the folks you met, and that's the great joy of doing what we do, right? We get a chance to hobnob with people we admire. What was Ted Williams like when you chatted with him? Oh, my God. Ha! So he's my hero from when I'm a kid, right? And we moved from Chicago mm-hmm. to Boston, and I used to race home from school to listen on the radio because it wasn't on TV, that being the Red Sox game. You know, he batted third, so when it was the home game. So, so anyway, he was my hero. Eddie Fisher and uh, what's her name? I forget now. Debbie Reynolds. Debbie Reynolds, yeah. They were plastered all over my friends' bedrooms, but not me. I had number nine all over the place. I think my mother was a little worried about me. <laughs> but then, so many years later, as a reporter with Channel 5, I worked on the board with the uh, Scleroderma Foundation, and then we joined with Lupus. And I found out that Ted Williams' daughter, second daughter, had lupus or had been diagnosed with lupus. So through Kurt Gowdy, who was a friend, he and he got Ted Williams to come for a big fundraiser. I mean, it was humongous. So I get to meet, um, and all the Red Sox came. It was a big deal. I did interviews with his two kids, John Henry and his daughter. And uh, we had a band, and, you know, it was a big production. And I was so excited. I was like a little girl. I saw a picture of myself standing next to Ted Williams at that event. I looked like that nine-year-old kid who ran home from school to hear <laughs> to hear his at that. And by the way, by the way, oh, cool. uh, you really? had the honor of throwing out the first pitch or a pitch at Fenway. Yeah. And I'd love to know, first of all, how did the pitch go, if you remember? <laughs> I do. I do remember. Thank God for Larry Lucchino. He was the sweetest man, is the sweetest man. Yeah. He's now, you know, in charge of the farm team in Worcester. And he was president of the Red Sox at the time, gave me that great honor. I do. I can't do it on your show because you don't have enough time. But it is in the book, the story. Yeah. I practiced. I went to, I don't know, Walmart or something and got some balls and gloves and I asked every guy that came, whether it was the mailman or a friend, <laughs> can, you, can you teach me how to throw like a boy, you know, overhand? Because, <laughs> and I gotta get it, you know, that far. And it, it it was it's a fun story. And Larry's telephone call to me as I'm walking to the mound is hilarious. So anyway, it's in the book. <laughs> well, there's a, a great array of pictures, and uh, it reminds us that uh, a career like the one you've had, and thankfully the one I've had, it enables you to to do so many things. And I, I can sense you're grateful. There's a sense of gratitude that runs throughout Absolutely. your story. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, If you're not, I mean, what, what a job you and I have, or I had, you have. Um, you know, to be able to interview people, to talk to anybody, and then to to tell the story to other people so that people can better understand each other and their neighbors. And why do you think that way? Well, that's our job as reporters. We don't have to agree. What we need to do is understand why you believe what you do and be able to communicate that so other people understand it. So I'm, I'm totally grateful for the life I've had. Um, 
you know, I think people can be happy in many different careers. I don't think that there's just one career for each human being in the world. But when you settle on something, look for all that's good about it. Overcome the obstacles because there are plenty in every career and appreciate it and enjoy it. Love your your take on life as well as your take on the biz. And certainly a sweet book and one that I think a lot of people, not only in New England, but everywhere will appreciate. Every life a story. So nice to finally get a chance to sit you down for a half hour and chat. Hey, Jordan, thank you. And I wish you the best, too. Natalie Jacobson. Once again, her book, Every Life a Story, Natalie Jacobson Reporting. I highly recommend it. And I also recommend that you rate this podcast, hopefully with several stars, and add your reviews. The reviews really make a difference. We're adding subscribers every single week, which is really exciting, and I thank you. Thanks as well to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing, and to everyone at Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other podcasts. Till next time, this is Jordan as always saying, be well so you can do good. Take care.